if you can get rid of an inerrant Bible, you can get rid of God. And that's exactly Dawkins' strategy. The problem with that strategy is that there is a sizable obstacle in the way. And that obstacle is the facts. You can make all the wild claims you want to about the Bible being full of historical inaccuracies, but then you have to prove it. And that's exactly what Dawkins doesn't do. This next installment in the series on the God Delusion, we're going to show you that the Bible is 100% factually true. So stay tuned with us right now on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Okay, we're back here today in our series on the God Delusion. Today we're going to take up the topic of, is the Bible actually true? Is it factually true? And if we can prove that, we can go a long way to undermine one of Dawkins' key arguments against the existence of God. And joining us today, as usual, for our discussion is Reverend Adam Kalustian and Reverend Moses Janbazian, and I'm John Sautel. We're all pastors in local churches here in Southern California, taking on the topic of the historical accuracy of the Bible. There's all kinds of claims that are made against it, and every year, you'll around the time of Christmas and around Easter, you'll always find at the newsstands, whether it's Time, Newsweek, uh, National Geographic Channel on cable, wherever, you're always going to find experts lining up trying to show you how the Bible is full of errors. And so you run to your common person on the street who rejects Christianity, and you ask them why. And one of the main reasons why they'll say they don't believe it is because they learn from Time magazine that the Bible just isn't true. It's full of uh, factual inaccuracies and errors, and therefore it's not reliable. We can't trust anything it really says. Therefore, they're going to reject the Christian claims out of hand. But the problem is that in so many of the cases where people raise these so-called inaccuracies, what they're doing is they're raising uh, very old objections. They're bringing up very old criticisms of Scripture, which have been proven time and again to be false, not just by Christians, but by leading scholars in the field of biblical studies. And today, we want to analyze some of these arguments that Dawkins raises, and we'll show you that, first of all, they're just not true, and then we want to ground you in the fact that the Bible is a very reliable historical document, very reliable, and the claims that it makes, uh, whether that be in geography, history, names, dates, places, and so forth. And, you know, Dawkins leads into this criticism of Christianity, and particularly of the Bible, by making a, a series of statements in order to undermine our faith in the credibility and reliability of Scripture. And he begins by talking about how uh, there's no good historical evidence that Jesus ever thought that he was divine. So, First of all, how do we take on that particular criticism? I suppose we'd have to look at the words that are recorded about the Christ, about what Jesus said in the sermons that he gave and the talks he had with his disciples. And again, now some of the problem is that if he outright denies that these men even knew Jesus and they couldn't have known the conversations, you know, he's going to dismiss everything anyway. But we're affirming that we believe that the apostles were there with him, that they recorded these things. And Jesus was very self-conscious about the fact that he was God. And that was the reason he was so offensive to many of his listeners. That's why they wanted to kill him, is that he claimed to be equal to God the Father. And so we see when Jesus is accused of these things and he's about to be put to death, he doesn't mount a defense saying, oh, you've misunderstood me. 
I'm simply a prophet of God. I simply want you to understand what is good. Yeah, you're going you're to look for two kinds of evidences that Jesus claims to be God. One is his direct statements. So you can think of like John chapter 8 where Jesus is pressing his the claims of his own authority and he goes far enough and uses enough uh, Old Testament language that Yahweh uses about himself to the point that the Jews pick up stones to stone him. So you see Jesus directly claiming to be God. That's one category, and John 8 is just one place where that happens. The other category is the evidence of people making that claim about him and him simply not refuting it. I mean, uh, one thing you can't claim is that Jesus is somehow not aligned with the Old Testament. You know, Jesus clearly is interested in upholding the Father's authority, and if that's true, he would never tolerate anybody calling him God or anything near God without immediately rebuking them for it. That's what angels do in the Scripture, for instance. When people, when they appear on behalf of God the Father and people bow down to worship the angel, they immediately rebuke them. But Jesus never rebukes people who treat him as God. There are people in the Scripture who fall down to worship him. There is Thomas who calls him, my Lord and my God, and he accepts that uh, response of Thomas as, as a positive thing. There, this is, it's almost silly to still yet today claim that Jesus uh, isn't claiming to be God. And John records that story of Thomas with calling Jesus my Lord and my God, and John later records about himself in the book of Revelation how he made the mistake of bowing to angels, and they specifically told him, you are to worship God alone. So we can see that it is very deliberate that we are to understand Jesus knew and claimed he was God incarnate. Okay, well, one of the things that obviously somebody like Dawkins is going to say, well, all right, but a lot of these statements that you're bringing up are things that are written after the fact by sympathetic followers who, after the fact, are projecting their concepts of the Messiah onto Christ, and one of their concepts of the Messiah is that not only was he a true man, but he was also a true God. So they're just going to say, well, we can discount all of those because they're just statements that are made by disciples long after the fact. How would you respond to a, a criticism like that? First of all, pretty much everything that's written has to be after the fact, or it wouldn't be valid in re- recording of history. But what you would have there is obviously a group of people who are committed to what they believe to be true. Obviously, they're going to record that. That doesn't make it inaccurate or that doesn't make it something that's not worthy of consideration. All of history that we have is usually recorded by someone who admires another person, somebody who was at the events and wants it recorded for posterity. What you have to do is say, did they record it accurately? Is what is saying capable of being analyzed and verified? And in all those cases, Scripture, I think, has done a remarkable job. It comes through again and again that it's historically grounded. The stories are accurate. They were written early enough that people were around as eyewitnesses who could have contradicted it. And we see that in these things, that there is remarkable uniformity in the message, in the person, in what they are declaring, and and really the fulfillment of the prophecies being shown so magnificently in the person of Jesus Christ. One of the things that rings true for me about some of these statements, though, too, is the reactions that he got when he made some of the statements that he did. Like Adam mentions um, John 8 or John 10. And the thing to note there is that the witnesses who heard him, the Bible says, picked up stones to kill him. 
they were offended by the fact that he didn't clarify when he made these statements that he really wasn't trying to say he was God. They, they understood very clearly from what he was saying that he was making an implicit claim to deity, and therefore they wanted to, they wanted to kill him because they thought he was a liar and a blasphemer. So, you know, the scriptures are pretty clear about the fact that Jesus does make claims. He doesn't correct people. And so this is one of the uh, big holes in Dawkins' argument. But there's so many things that he raises against the scriptures here. I I don't want to just focus in too much on that idea that Jesus never claims to be God. He has so much here that he writes to try to critique the scriptures as a source of evidence. And one one of the primary, well, one of the beginning pieces that he offers in his criticism of Scripture as being reliable. He said, well, we can't really trust the Scriptures because what we have are a bunch of documents that have been copied and recopied over and over again over a course of, of, of hundreds of years by scribes who were not only fallible but also had their own private personal agenda. So they were kind of just embellishing, as it were, as they went along and making the, the picture of Jesus and the things that he did uh, more grandiose in order to support a theology. How would we respond to something like that? Well, the first question we would ask is, what is your evidence? I mean, on a lot of these claims, a lot of the criticisms of the Scripture, even the one that you raised before, the idea that the, the narratives, the actual history that's recorded in what we have as the Gospels today was composed much later. You know, it was, it was made up by the uh, scribes who then backdated it to fit their later formed theology, or this idea that we have lost so much in the transmission of the original Gospels that what we have today can hardly be called uh, what we would have had had they been written initially. Anyway, my question is, what is your evidence? I mean, the evidence comes down to, well, they had to have come up with it because it fit their later theology. Well, the Christian claim is the opposite, that their theology actually developed out of the the truth of the life and the teachings of Christ. Now, who gets to make their case over the other one is my question. In, in order to to make the claim so decidedly, one way or the other, you've got to offer evidence. And one thing that I did not read in Dawkins' critique of the Scripture is his evidence for his claim that the church wrote the Gospels later, or that the copies were manipulated. He just says it. And one of the things that I'm I'm sure we'll get into in more detail is, this reflects scholarly consensus of about 150 years ago, 150 to 100 years ago, which has long since, even by those people who do not accept the Scripture, been rejected. Because the evidences for this kind of critique never held water under examination. Yeah, overwhelmingly, with the number of documents that we have going back all the way to the first century even, we can see that there is a very good transmission history, that there was incredible work being done to make sure that there wasn't a corruption of these texts. And with the Old Testament especially, we have something very amazing, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls that were hidden sometime around 70 AD, but they actually, some of them go back to 200 B.C., and they were discovered in 1947, and till now it had been always assumed that, oh, well, you know, when we find these early ones, we'll see a large number of differences, discrepancies everywhere. But the before that, the oldest documents that we had of the Old Testament go back to a codex from Leningrad, and that was around 900 to 1000 AD. And here you have something of a 
basically a 1,200-year gap minimum of an 800-year gap, and it was virtually the same thing. You know, a letter here, a letter there maybe, but you've got such an incredible accuracy in the transmission because the scribes saw it as God's word and would not take a chance at corrupting it. So the argument falls flat on its face because the evidence is overwhelming that accuracy in transmission was considered vital among the monks, among the scholars, among the Jewish writers to make sure that everything was transmitted as accurately as possible for the following generations. Yeah, those uh, Hebrew scribes went to painstaking lengths to make sure that they were exact in their copying of those ancient scriptures. Sure, there's there's places where you're going to find some discrepancies in the record, but with the the development of the science of textual criticism, uh, almost everybody in, in, in the industry of people who compare texts and so forth, and these are not just people who have uh, who are fundamentalist Christians who have some apologetic stake or interest in it, but just your average secular scholars are pretty much in agreement that there there aren't gaps or big holes. There isn't embellishing going along in those in those, for instance, those Old Testament documents. But you also have uh, newer documents, New Testament documents that have been uh, found from say the first century A.D. or on the early second century A.D. or a little bit later. And if you compare some of those fragments which we have over against later copies from the 3rd and 4th centuries and beyond, you will find remarkable accuracy and consistency in the transmission of these records. So this argument that Dawkins raises is really a pre-Dead Sea Scroll argument. It's before the 1950s when scholars were uh, circulating these kind of arguments to poke holes at the accuracy of the, the text which we now have and saying, well... Sure, they're consistent now, but they weren't before. Well, all that went out the window, basically, with a lot of these archaeological discoveries, and they found that there is remarkable consistency in the transmission and copying of these records. So this this is a really simplistic and, and silly argument that Dawkins raises here. Not only simplistic and silly, but it's the people who levy these arguments themselves are, are totally inconsistent. I mean, if you look at the New Testament manuscript record, we talked a little about the Old Testament, but talking about you know over 5500 greek manuscripts in existence today testifying to the you know or, that are copies of the originals copies of copies of the original old, uh, new testament writings you have over 19000 copies of the new testament in various languages through the ancient world the total supporting new testament manuscript base is over 24000 then obviously and like uh, pastor john mentioned Many of them early, or some of them early 2nd century, even 1st century, late 1st century. The point is this, that when you see these scholars in the field of biblical criticism showing that somehow the, the Scripture is not well attested, they will take even much older books, okay, with a far less, almost extraordinarily, you know, shockingly less manuscript base, and they will treat them with confidence, Okay, but somehow when it comes to the Scripture, when there's this massive, overwhelming uh, supporting evidence in the, in the manuscript line for the, the veracity of what we have today, they want to refute it. Now, we've seen a move in more recent scholarship that people are finally becoming honest and saying, you know what, we can't refute it. It just doesn't prove that it's saying what you think it says. But this, is, this kind of inconsistency betrays really the lack of objectivity of uh, Dawkins and others who make these claims. They would never make these claims in their own fields of science or in other fields of literature. Well, yeah, it, it, it's intellectually shoddy and weak and probably one of his flimsiest arguments. So let's go on to another one uh, that you know some people may be more intimidated by. And uh, his next criticism is that the New Testament Gospels were written so long after the epistles 
after Paul and Peter and James and all these guys wrote. And so basically what they are doing is they're after the fact embellishing the record and, and, and building it up and shaping it to meet their own uh, theological criteria for who Christ was. So they're going to say, well, he's saying, well, you can't really trust uh, the record that we have of Jesus' life because, frankly, the apostles don't say a whole lot about the details and facts of Jesus' life. So all that we have available to us are these these canonical gospels, and they were written so late based upon all kinds of theological presuppositions that we can't trust those either. How, how are we going to answer a criticism like that? Because that does sound like it may have some weight to well, it. Well, it would only have weight if he is, one, able to prove the dates of when these things were written, which there is nobody who knows the exact dates of the writings of any of these things. Secondly, you would have to prove that the epistles actually do not affirm the things that the gospel is telling and I don't think that anyone has ever succeeded in doing that. And so what he's basically done is he's created this argument saying, look, I, I am going to posit, I'm going to argue that the Gospels are all written after the letters. And then what the Gospels are trying to do is trying to make the letters seem more legitimate by embellishing this character, Jesus, that the letters are speaking about. But he hasn't proven such an argument. And in fact, it goes completely contrary to logic. The reason that those letters would have been written to churches who were worshiping the name of Jesus is because they previously had heard the gospel, and they previously had placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and so the letters would be written to tell them some of the implications of their faith in their walk, in their life. Anyways, just use common sense. I mean, sit down and read the gospels and read the letters. And I'll ask you this question. If, if it was your duty, your job— to promote yourself and sustain your religion, which you had, you know, come up with by embellishing the life of Christ and, the, and embellishing the teachings of the life of Christ into these Gospels, would you have come up with, you know, having already written the epistles of Paul, for example, would you have then come up with the, the Gospels, the synoptics, the way that they're, the current form that they're in? I mean, I, I find that to be ridiculous because... One of the evidences of the truthfulness of the Scripture is that it, it does not give the obvious common sense indicator of it being a fabricated document, because it doesn't smooth over all the apparent contradictions. I mean, one of the fascinating fields of theological study is trying to understand the teachings of the apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit with the actual life and teaching and preaching of Jesus himself. I'll tell you what, I'll just be honest with you, if I was Paul— or Peter, and I had written my epistle, look, I would have made the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ a lot more or less uh, difficult to understand and comprehend and to synthesize with my own. And by, by difficult, I mean outwardly. I mean, these people were pretty pathetic. If the best they could come up with to synthesize their own epistles was the narratives in the current form that they are. Now, I'm not saying that the narratives and the and the uh, sermons and the teachings of Jesus do not go here with the epistles. Absolutely, they do. But it takes some work to figure that out, right? Why so cryptic in the Gospels if you're just trying to make it really clear that you're following this Jesus? I mean, some of the difficulty of this question proves its veracity, well, is my point. besides that, I mean— it overlooks the fact that you do have direct quotations of the Gospels in the writings themselves, in, in the epistles themselves. Paul, for instance, in First Timothy 5, quotes from Luke. Peter, in, in his second epistle, quotes directly from Mark's Gospel in his account of the transfiguration when Jesus 
is visited by Elijah and Moses. So, you know, really what stands behind this criticism, again, is a, is a tired old criticism that comes out of the 19th century when uh, some of the early Bible critics were trying to drive a wedge between the writings of the apostles and then what you have in the Gospels. And what they were arguing back then was that the Gospels are l- written much later along with Acts, and they're trying to justify whatever is going on in certain factions of the church. And so they would pit the Gospels and Acts over against the epistles, and then they would kind of say, well, most of the epistles are kind of trustworthy. They're probably from the apostles, and they give us a completely different picture. But, you know, when you go back and you look at the actual evidence, this criticism just falls to pieces, as we're pointing out here, because the the apostles are actually quoting from these Gospels, which would prove that they had to have been already written by the time that these quotations are made from them in the apostolic writings themselves. Again, Dawkins, and you're going to see this in a lot of the criticisms that he raises here in, in his arguments against Scripture, is that really he's, he's not very well informed. He quotes confidently from uh, critics who whose basically a lot of their criticisms have been so thoroughly refuted by facts, evidence, archaeology, whatever— that that your average person today who is a true bona fide critic of Christianity or a so-called Bible scholar who's not a Christian would look at those and they say, yeah, well, those criticisms actually weren't very good. They weren't valid because we know better now based upon a whole series of evidence. But for some reason, Dawkins is, is either unfamiliar with them or he just is very selective and he chooses not to quote newer evidence because he knows that his his arguments would fall apart. So this one is not a good criticism of uh, the New Testament scriptures. He also has another one here that, well, the Gospels which we have are another indication of the church being selective. They could have chosen any number of other Gospels, but for some reason or another, usually driven by political purposes or whatever, they chose the four Gospels that we have now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, this presumes that there was multiple ways of interpreting Christ's life, and in fact, if Jesus really existed— that he actually didn't even say the things that the four Gospels we have in the Bible today said, that really he was more of a cryptic teacher who had more of what now we call Gnosticism. But this idea of, you know, a separation between body and spirit and the spirit being good, the body being bad. But the reason that these Gospels were chosen is that the church very early on recognized these were the ones that reflected and taught the words that Jesus taught. These are the ones that were the accurate recordings of it. And the other ones, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel, I think Peter is one of the other ones. It's these ones that were written by people who were trying to undermine Christianity or were trying to ride Christianity and make some money off of it. And the church never accepted those other Gospels. It's not like these were all in competition and somehow we edged them out by a 51% vote. Okay, but what Dawkins is saying is that, well, yeah, but, I mean, clearly the the church had reason to select, say, as many as they could come up with that gave a uniform message and with the emerging religious consciousness of the what came to be called the Christian faith, however long it took that to develop into a consensus. And, you know, so maybe you're listening, right? And, and maybe you're just trying to be objective. On the one side, you hear us saying, no, I mean, they chose it because they happen to be true. The other ones had profit motivation. Dawkins on the other side says, no, uh, actually, the Christian church had its profit motivation, too. And that's why they selected some coherent gospels. Well, listen, w- here's what we're saying. We are all for 
asking these questions and saying who actually has evidence for their claims and and who is is coming up with things that can more likely be explained through you know their own profit motivations or their own desires to believe fantastic myths and stories so we come to these sets of gospels and we say look for example at the gospel of luke and say does luke give any indication any consistent indication of its historical reliability you know given the fantastic claims that it makes and we say yes it does in fact the author of luke luke writing to Theophilus, makes a big deal at the beginning of the gospel, if you want to go back and read it, about him having researched very carefully, based on sources and his own interviews of eyewitness accounts of what are the things that he had written, to make sure that everything that Theophilus had been taught was actually true. Along with that, then, we recognize to the original uh, recipient of the, the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, and the early Christian community, they are going to be able to go over to the eyewitnesses who had been interviewed, who are the basis, whose accounts are the basis of what Luke recorded. They are going to be able to do the research that Luke did in order to verify, look for authenticity. Now, I want you to go read some of these so-called gospels that the church rejected and, and ask yourself if they even make any sort of semblance of historic claims, instead of reading exactly like a fable and a myth. There is an objective difference when you read the Gospels between those and these false Gospels and these mythological tales. And any idiot who has any uh, any experience in reading different kinds of literature, for example, a history book versus reading some mythological tales, can even sense the difference in the claims of the two books or the kinds of books that we're talking about. Just because Dawkins says there's some parallels between one and the other doesn't mean that obviously using common sense and objectivity that he will use in all sorts of other fields of study that he does, they will evidence themselves to be very different and actually uh, give the characteristic of make, of claiming to make historical, truthful claims. Well, one of the most interesting, too, to add on to this, one of the most interesting developments of the early church period and the history of the early church is the fact of the recognition of the canon. Now, to be sure, it did take some time, finally, before the church uh, fully settled on a recognized list of 27 New Testament books like we have in the Bible that you would have on your shelf at home. Probably didn't until closer to the mid-4th century finally come to some complete consensus on that. But the interesting thing is is that you know the church was located in probably four major different geographical regions, and some of these regions didn't have a lot of interaction with each other. But they all independently pretty much came up with consensus on these four Gospels on their own. And one reason why they could do that is because these Gospels cohered with a, a Christian understanding of, of a number of points of, of Christian theology. One of them is that uh, they all have a, a sense of the fundamental goodness of creation. They all maintain the fact that you know, the world is made by God, the material things are not evil in and of themselves. A lot of these other Gospels, which were excluded, come out of the Gnostic tradition, which downplay uh, creation, that teach that it's evil, and that religion is all about escape from it. You don't find that in the Old Testament. These Gospels, which we have, these canonical Gospels, cohere very well with the with the strong sense of the fundamental goodness of creation. They also, these four Gospels, all affirm that Christ uh, became incarnate, which is obviously a pillar of the Christian faith that God became man and took upon himself uh, flesh. These Gnostic Gospels don't do that either. They all have a 
a consistent and coherent view of salvation being by grace, which, uh, again, the excluded Gospels didn't have. And pretty much the Church in these, very, in these uh, various regions that oftentimes didn't have a lot of interaction, contact with each other, the Christians sitting there uh, realized that these Gospels, uh, above the other ones, uh, cohered well with the, the, the total Christian message and, and the, the, the message of the Scripture. Except, though, how would you guys respond to this? Dawkins will hear that and say, well, of course, <laughs> because, you know, they're presuming the truth of the Old Testament Scripture and all the ways that you said, the goodness of creation, you know, the reality of the flesh, the reality of resurrection, you know, salvation by grace alone, not by works. They're also, you know, wanting that to be fulfilled as the apostles were establishing the church. They wanted these truths to be true. So they chose the Gospels, which actually you know, cohered with those presupposed uh, beliefs. I mean, I guess Dawkins' point is that doesn't prove that they're historically true. So how would you respond to that? Well, because you're also dealing with real names and places and events and things that were verifiable. And these early churches are forming and people are placing their trust for everlasting life in Christ. You would assume, and I believe the history would show, they have actually verified who wrote these books, which churches first received them, where did we get our copy from. They checked all these things out. And that's part of the point that you were making earlier, Adam, is the fact that they don't read mythologically of some ancient time in a land that is now lost. It spoke specifically of Jerusalem at the time of Pilate. A man was crucified, tried, and it was during the time of this festival when there were many strangers in town who have now dispersed back to all these different regions where the church is forming. They would have done the historical checks on it like Luke did when he wrote his gospel. Yeah, and then Paul, I mean, here's the example. So you do have the later church, like Paul writing and saying, all right, let me tell you how the resurrection went, okay? He rose, and then he appeared to X amount of witnesses. Now, why is he recounting that to the church in Corinth? Because he is establishing, and this is his very argument in that section, he's establishing that without the veracity of the resurrection account, the whole faith is worthless. So I'm going to give you the eyewitness accounts so that then you'll be able to go back and verify them. I mean, our faith is worthless unless it's historically true. Now, then I'm not going to tell you not to ask the questions. Rather, I'm going to tell you to ask the questions to demonstrate the truthfulness of it. This all gets back to the thing that is so daring about the Scriptures, that if you compare it over against other religious writings and mythology of the ancient world, the, the thing that is so daring is that it puts uh, the the Incarnation, the birth of Christ, the, the miracles that he performed, the things that he said— it puts it right in the context of uh, verifiable historical geographical locations. None of those other ones do that. And so it has a ring of truth to it already because of that and because it could be fact-checked. And, and then you go back and look at the facts and you see that actually these guys were reporting things accurately. And that gets into another, uh, really, the, the, the linchpin of Dawkins' arguments here against Scripture is he basically says, well... Because I think some of these other arguments that he raises are just peripheral. They're, they're, it's almost subterfuge. It's just like adding a whole bunch of things in to make it sound like you have a really persuasive uh, case. But really, the the nub of his argument is, well, let's just set those other things aside. And let's get back to the very text that we have right now. And what we could and what he would say is the text that you have right now are just riddled with inaccuracies. And so let's go through some of the things that he points out. Uh, first of all. Uh, John and Luke can't seem to agree where Jesus was born. Uh, one will say Bethlehem, 
and the other Galilee. So see there, you can't trust this, 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 the Bible you even have because it, it's just contradictory. First major problem is that John doesn't claim that Jesus was born anywhere. He doesn't actually make the claim that Jesus was born in Galilee. He merely says at the time that Jesus' ministry began, he was starting from Galilee. That was his place of residence. And therefore, the criticism being leveled against him, which John records is, people said, since when has there been a prophet of God who came out of Galilee? And so there's no contradiction between them because they're not talking about the same item. So Luke records a birth narrative. John does not. Therefore, John's statement about Jesus coming from Galilee is from the mouth of the critics regarding his place of origin at the time of his ministry. Okay, okay. So Dawkins will say, well, all right, you come up with your own you know, sophisticated ways of, of harmonizing all these things, and maybe they're true, maybe they're not. But there's even a bigger problem. Let's just say we'll concede for the moment, for the sake of argument, that really John and Luke are not in conflict over Bethlehem being the place where Jesus was born. It still doesn't relieve the fact that there's still a problem, a historical problem in in the uh, biblical record of Jesus being born in Bethlehem because of this. In Matthew, we are told that Jesus, yes, is born in Bethlehem, and it is during the reign of King Herod. But in Luke, we are given the additional description of the time frame because not only does Luke say that he is born in Bethlehem, but he is born there at the time when Caesar Augustus says that Joseph basically has to go back to Bethlehem to register back in his hometown of Bethlehem. And that is done at the time when Quirinius is also the governor. Now, the problem is this. Dawkins says, Luke screws the whole thing up because Quirinius was governor in 6 AD, long after King Herod is dead. So it cannot possibly be that Matthew and Luke are on the same page about when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which turns out to be just one more of these historical inaccuracies and shows that the uh, writers of the gospel themselves can't agree on the actual facts. Well, the first tack I would take with this, then he's wrong about his previous argument that the Gospels are written after the letters and everything should have already been harmonized. Because if they were making up a lie, they would have to have coordinated something that obvious that any idiot could have gotten, especially at the time in which they would have had a memory of who some of these men were and when they had reigned. Or here's the solution, exactly. Quirinius had two stints as governor of Syria. Okay, so the one that Luke is talking about was the one during the birth of Christ, and there was a later one in 6 AD. Now, just just to make clear here, Pastor Adam isn't making that up as, as he's saying, oh, well, here, here's how we'll relieve the tension. We'll just make Quirinius being a governor in two different times. No, it, it, he's not fabricating that. We actually have an inscription from Antioch indicating that he had two different stays as governor, one B.C. and one A.D., if you will. So Luke is not making up anything here. He's just recording that the census occurred under Caesar Augustus during the first stint as governor over Syria. Right. Now, thankfully, Dawkins doesn't take time to go through the probably hundreds, maybe not in the hundreds, but the tens and tens and tens of ones that critics of the Scripture always bring up, these apparent conflicts in the historical accounts, either when they, are, when they try to be harmonized or when they try to be compared with you know, extant sources outside of, of biblical literature at the time. 
I mean, he just brings up this one, which he seems to think is so obvious, and he probably chose the one that he found the most persuasive as being false, you know. He, he chooses this and then just categorically dismisses the Scripture now as is historically inaccurate. But I want you to think about a couple of principles, okay, that, again, anybody with common sense, with objectivity, will apply in any other examination of any historical record or two different newspaper accounts of the same story. These go back very early in the understanding of the Scripture in the Church. One of them is the idea of additive harmonization, meaning what? When you have two different accounts of the same story written from a different perspective, now you're hearing different details, right? But obviously, the event itself will have included a lot of details that weren't recorded by either of the two people telling the story. So when you think about the possibilities, or like in the case of Quirinius having a, a second, a first and second stint as governor of Syria, if you have an actual record outside of the scripture of a further detail. You put all of these details together, and a lot of times that solves the problem. You can see that one gospel writer, say, is telling the story from one perspective and choosing some of the details, and the other gospel writer is choosing some other details. He's not contradicting the details of the other gospel writer. They're just giving the story from two different perspectives. Another principle is the understanding that sometimes people write uh, thematically or topically instead of chronologically. A lot of people say, well, look, this happened in the wrong order in one gospel compared to the other one. And we say, well, wait a minute. I mean, you don't know that one gospel writer took a particular piece of history and put it somewhere else for topical reasons. You know, good movies, good historical uh, books will write stylistically and not always order everything chronologically. They're, they're telling a different story for different reasons. This doesn't mean that it's historically inaccurate. This is all just petty. And you'll come across all kinds of people spouting off against you know, so-called contradictions in the Bible. We'll go back and read what Christian scholars or even non-Christian scholars who want to say that the Bible is coherent, read what they have answered, and you'll find that those far outweigh just basic common-sense principles, following those principles to see what's true. So, at the end of the day, you look at all these criticisms that Dawkins gives. He tries to undermine the veracity of Scripture, saying it's a completely historically unreliable document, and therefore we cannot accept anything it says. Well, the fact of the matter is that Dawkins is relying on, on old scholarship, which has been thoroughly refuted through a number of different means, and what we end up with is a very historically reliable Bible. We have over 39 extra-biblical sources verifying over 100 facts about the life of Christ that are recorded for us in Scripture. So it's not just that the Bible has been proven by archaeology and so forth to be true. You have extra-biblical writers confirming the very things that are in the Scripture and showing us time and time again that the Bible is accurate. So now, if we, if we think about these things and we show that, yeah, there's not a good argument for, for rejecting Scripture, what do we do with all these evidences that we do have? What can we say about the Bible now? We have a Bible that's reliable, factually true. Does that mean, then, that it's a good resource for evidence about the existence of God? Well, John, you asked a question, or you, you made a statement at the beginning. You said um, that if we can discredit an inerrant Bible, then God can be discredited. And so I think the least thing, or at least that's what Dawkins is trying to do, right? He's trying to give proof that the Bible is historically inaccurate, therefore say that the Bible cannot be a source of a revelation from God. 
And so the theistic worldview, at least the Christian theistic worldview, which is centered around the scripture, must be false. Well, the least we can say then is that if we remove this false accusation that the Bible has errors in it, then you're going to have to come up, Dawkins, with another basis for rejecting Christian theism. Uh, Look, if, if you want to reject a Christian worldview, trying to discredit the Bible is not going to be the way you need to go about it. Because the Bible is historically accurate by any objective standard of evaluation. So that's the first thing to say. But I would go a step further with this. When you have a book which is historically accurate, which is self-consistent, which in an historically accurate way and a self-consistent way also makes miraculous claims, also demonstrates miraculous prophecies and their fulfillment, in some cases even thousands of years later after the prophecy was spoken, and that book makes claims of divine inspiration, then you have objective proof of the veracity of the Christian faith. Now, you may try and discredit that proof. You may come up with all kinds of reasons why you don't like it. And we know that the fact that it is true and that it makes the claims and defends and supports the claims that it makes uh, doesn't mean that everybody will believe it. But you have to deal with the proof of the Christian faith, which is evidenced in the Scripture. Okay, let's just say that that's, that's, a, that's a valid argument you're making. Why, then, do people reject the Bible? Why, then, do they reject that as evidence for God's existence and the truth of the Christian faith? If it's overwhelmingly proved to be true, and, and you add some of these things you're talking about, fulfillment of Scripture, prophecies which are prophesied a thousand years in advance, and there's all this objective evidence, what's the problem? Ultimately, we would say it goes to the corruption and fall of man, which Scripture attests to. It tells us that man is hostile toward God, that it seeks to create the idol of the self or other idols in place of God because it does not wish to submit to the true God. So the fact that it is being denied and rebelled against is in no way a surprise scripturally. And it's something that no Christian should think that once the evidence comes in, everybody will believe. The reality is that we are sinners. We are depraved by nature and therefore unable, unwilling to do what the Scriptures command, which is to affirm God as the true God and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to think that the unbelieving world, having already seen the glory of God displayed in His creation, the very lives that they live, the things they see around them, well, they suppress the truth about the true God and their unrighteousness. There's no reason to expect that all of a sudden now when they come to His special revelation— that they're not just going to embrace him and be persuaded by the evidence. I mean, on the other hand, we're hopeful that the Holy Spirit, by the power of of God's grace in Christ, will come to people and persuade them either through the means of the, the objective evidence that's there for the beauties and the truthfulness of the Scripture, or even apart from Uh, those ordinary means of the intellect and whatever, and just open their minds up to see the objective uh, truth of the Word. I mean, we're hopeful that the Lord will do that, and He does do that. I mean, He did it with us. Uh, But we are realistic about the fact that that the proofs of the Scripture's truthfulness and beauties and, and, and glories will not be accepted even by, you know, smart people. This brings us back to the beginning. We started by saying... If you get rid of an inerrant Bible, you get rid of God. The only problem with that is the facts are stubborn and they stand in the way. You can't get rid of God because you can't get rid of 
an inerrant Bible. This Bible, which we have, 66 books written over the course of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors on several different continents, is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Not only that it coheres theologically and ethically, but it is 100% factual. And it testifies to the existence of God, to the existence of the only Savior that God has appointed for men to be saved through, and that is Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, instead of fighting against this Bible, you need to give up your resistance, Dawkins, and accept the fact that this Bible is inerrant and inspired, and it proclaims a wonderful gospel of salvation uh, by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. We want to thank you for staying tuned with us today on Sinners and Saints. Catch us next time as we continue to take on more arguments from the God delusion. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge.